right, we're recording. Um, this is Degenerations of Democracy. I guess this is just episode two of the actual series. Um, probably when this comes out, that the little like interlude thing we had will be out as well. Um, <clears throat> this is like that was like one and a half, I guess. This is two. Mm-hmm. Um, and got some notes again and we can just hop right into it if you want yeah i mean i guess maybe like a quick recap i think from our our last conversations i mean to kind of build off of that we we covered a lot of ground i think last time we talked about we talked a little about about media we spoke a little bit about um, elections and participation and engagement and i think these next two chapters is talks a lot about money mm-hmm. like for chapter three and then kind of chapter four um, it's like where's chapter four? Oh, yeah we have chapter four here it's like authenticity um, i will say um the book got a lot better for me at least i don't know if it was just this i think calhoun wrote these two chapters but i enjoyed these a lot a yeah lot more. well i i, I think it, it um I think it brought a lot of tangible like aspects to like it, it wasn't just about values right because i think values can be interpreted differently i think it's it kind of made it much more mathematical statistical mm-hmm. um which is you know i think good for everyone to kind of look at because everyone's looking at their bottom dollar um but um yeah i guess he starts off chapter three by talking about just like major like global events, specifically like World War II, and that had to like restructured how our economy had to work. Um, so like a lot of social w- welfare projects and programs came out like post-World War, you know, reconstruction or whatever. Um, yeah, so he kind of builds a, like a, not quite a utopia, but basically like the 30 years directly after World War II were... I guess sort of his ideal. So maybe that's, I know we asked the question of like, what were their, what was their ideal that we've like degenerated from? So it seems like maybe these, this span of 30 years from 45 to 75 is kind of what they're saying was mm. um, the highlight of democracy worldwide. Yeah. And he had an interesting chart. I'm, I'm not sure if it was in this specific, if it was in Latrank glory. Justice. I don't even know how to say that. I'm not going to try um, but because like, you also have like the Roaring Twenties, where supposedly we had like a boom, and yeah, the, the chart shows it. Like between 1920s to 1930s, you just have this spike of top one percent wealth share in the United States. So that's when you kind of have a lot of billionaires, and then it kind of swings down, where like, the top one percent wealth share in the United States like decreases to like 25 percent. And then it starts climbing back where there's just greater inequality kind of happening. Um, yeah, so, so he, he shows after World War II um, an increase in pensions, unemployment benefits, and health insurance. So kind of an expanding middle class and um, greater, um, I guess, social welfare or kind of security um, for the average person. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what he is saying led to um, that period being such a good time. Yeah. Riches such as carbs brought dependence on carbs. Yeah, and I think there was like, I guess a somewhat of a, I want to call it like a, maybe paradox is probably the best word I can think of right now, but that although you're having like economic growth, that also comes with its own baggage. So if riches are increasing in your society, um, like your, your people can buy cars, but that also increases dependence on oil. So um, there is like somewhat of a cost associated with like economic growth, people wanting certain things and dependency on certain nice things. Um, and that could potentially be a route for degeneracy. Well, yeah, let's hold on. Let's talk about that because you kind yeah. of are into urban planning somewhat. What do you think about uh, cars and basically how we have designed, especially in the United States, kind of designed our cities or cityscapes around vehicles? Well, I can't remember which president it was. Maybe it was Eisenhower, but I the think it was around World system. War. Yeah, the highway system. Yeah. It was pretty much that the government needed a way to transport troops from one side of the coast to the other because you're fighting, you know, Europeans on the East Coast and you're fighting, um, I guess, more broadly, Asians on, on the West Coast. So, you know, you had to be able to move troops across the country quickly. Um, so there's a military precedent, um, which I, I don't think was the wrong decision. I think it was a necessary decision. But... Um, I guess in terms of lifestyle, just the overemphasis of having cars and transportation be just essential to everything, that if you don't have a car, you are kind of limited to certain freedoms. Um, you're kind of excluded out of um, certain opportunities. So I, I, I think there is a growing movement in terms of making cities more walkable and making them more personal. Um, when you have the opportunity to just drive past problems, like literally just through a highway system, um, you know, certain neighborhoods that are disadvantaged from having cars, um, they won't interact with certain parts of your society. So um, it's a privilege, you know, to drive a car. I mean, even, even when you get your driver license, I remember when I was getting my license, they'll tell you like driving is not a right, driving is a privilege, right? I'm not sure if they told you the same thing when you're getting your license. Um, uh, I think another big component of like the highway system, which in which it's been abused, is they'll create. They, it's been proven that they were creating highways through um, disadvantaged neighborhoods just because they could, right? So if you have a community that is uh, very well organized and can oppose uh, certain kinds of construction, then obviously you can protect your communities. But um, uh, you know, lower income, disadvantaged, um, oftentimes African American communities didn't have that, you know, didn't have the strength to resist certain developments and, you know, entire communities would be divided and cleared out to make way for highways. Well, I think that was kind of interesting because he was kind of saying how government support um, created all these opportunities. But then I guess he did kind of say that eminent domain, like taking of private property through eminent domain was also problematic. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition of like 
you need to create this highway system, but you're also going to have to take away private property from certain people or, as you were saying, disrupt different communities. Right, right. So, I mean, it's, it's just another place that you can disenfranchise people from wanting to participate in democracy when um, they feel that certain technologies or certain uh, developments are geared towards supporting certain individuals. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, in, in theory, a highway system should benefit most people, I would say. <laughs> I think with, like, lower, like, cars have become more accessible nowadays. Like, you can buy used cars. Uh, the production of cars, I, I think, generally have, just through assembly line and supply chain, um, have become cheaper. So there's different price points of cars that people can purchase. Um, but you know, um, there, there is still segments of the, like of the population where, who don't own cars and need alternative, you know, public transit, um, other forms of transportation to, to help them, you know, get around in a city. But I, I think that the main discourse nowadays, it's, it's all about like health benefits, right? You know, the having cleaner air, having people who actually move about and, um, exercising their bodies versus waiting in traffic for, you know, two hours or commuting to where they have to go for work. Um, and also just the sense of like isolation that, you know, individualism, um, that just having a car and, and moving around creates versus having a tight knit neighborhood where everyone gathers, you have community barbecues, um, you can check up on your neighbors. Um, there's, there's events, there's, you know, youth, I mean, you only well, get to drive a car. Yeah. I think, yeah, sorry. Um, I think the car actually kind of unlocked the suburb. Without the car, there is no such thing as a suburb, in my opinion. That's true. It's That's created the spreading out of like, instead of having your population concentrated in a city center, it's allowed the city to just keep growing into these like large metro areas with suburbs on the outside and people commuting in to work every day. Yeah. And uh, well, the, the, I, I, this isn't much of a, like a counter argument to what you're saying. I absolutely agree. But one of the, the effects of these sprawling suburbs is they've actually depopulated the city itself. Mm-hmm. So there's a really funny, um, I guess you can call it a meme on Twitter that I saw, but it showed like the suburbs were like these little al- artillery kind of things and they're like firing into the city Mm. so you know the suburb is like almost an attack against the city where the city is like everybody's together you know all the different you know social stratas of society are together it's in a walkable it's in a walkable space and now it's like it's all about cars it's all about urban sprawl um and uh, depopulating the city so yeah there's a cool there's a twitter account that posts basically like old roadmaps or like topology of cities and how they've just turned into parking lots basically. Yeah. <laughs> like they've torn down housing and just created parking lots. Um, yeah. Yeah. The city experience is, is definitely, I, I don't think it was as, ex- it's a, as exciting in our time as it maybe it was maybe like, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 years ago where it's like you, you are in the city. Um, However, I don't think cities are going anywhere. I think, you know, cities are still going to be um, 
and they say that they're projecting that cities, like most of the half of the human population is going to be living in cities. Um, so just something, I guess, to consider. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that social welfare, like in terms of pensions, unemployment benefits, things like this, like security nets for like the middle class, have they declined since this period? Do you think, I mean, I think that's definitely what he's arguing in the, this chapter. That rephrase your question, maybe or, or yeah, like the he's saying that during this time, sort of unemployment benefits, health insurance, pensions, different forms of social wealth welfare flourished and caused like a greater flourishing of democracy and economy mm-hmm. during this time. Mm-hmm. I, I would say so. I mean, I, I would agree. I mean, uh, there there are definitely tangible impacts and benefits. Um, I personally, I, I don't know if I can truly comment on uh, if we need more of that or if we need less of that. Um, I guess th- there's a bit of a controversy there. Some people say that, no, this is not helping stimulate competitiveness and motivating people. It gives people a reason to be lazy. I think that's where I often hear the, the controversies about some of these like government programs to help um, and like you said, it sounded like the author was arguing that we should have more of that to create opportunities for people. Well, he sets up this, like going forward in a chapter, he sets up this opposition um, between that style. And then he's basically saying the popularization of neoliberalism is sort of what um, throws us off the track is how I interpret him. Mm. I think I'm how huh I mean I'm not sure if I can say that it's I, I saw it like explicitly him saying like neoliberal you know, he, did, he did have you know so, some language there that was critical of neoliberalism um, but it also sounded like things like neoliberalism that promotes is like having your own property is essential to building your wealth um, which I don't think he directly opposed, if, if I wasn't mistaken. Yeah. That if, if people have their own property, it'll, it'll help generate wealth. Um, but I guess maybe there's a disconnect, you know, for me at least, in terms of how these w- welfare programs are helping or not helping people own their own property. Um, so he sets up this interesting, here's this chart. The chart on page 102 is pretty interesting to me and he sets it up kind of in the context of economic development um and lose and uh sorry and workers losing rights and things like this mm. um so actually like right right below the chart he has the post-war achievement was to make the well-being of at least most citizens the object of government policy and institutions and support this by more equitable sharing of costs and at least tacit but sometimes active business embrace of a more equal society. And then he sets it up as like, from this point on, like that's the peak, like a more equitable society. From this point on, like he's saying neoliberalism, 
I think is what he's saying. It comes into government and um, starts creating a more individual, um, an emphasis on the individual and eroding basically these government policies and institutions. And then above this, he has this chart of American um, trust in their government from right. the Pew Research Center. And uh, yeah, I think he sets this up sort of in an, um, a context of the economy or some sort of like social policies. But when you look at the chart, okay, starting with Eisenhower, we're at like 70 something percent. Kennedy is the peak of this chart, trust and government. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I don't know, to me, <laughs> the sharp decline right here, there's a pretty important event, Kennedy getting assassinated. assassinated. I think that that has so much to do with yes. this huge like drop you see right after that, just as much as any like economic policy would. Well, there's six more assassinations that happened during that time period as well. I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King Jr. gets shot. Yeah. Malcolm X gets shot. And then there's like a few other like notable. Yeah. Probably, like, yeah, Robert Kennedy as well. Oh, yeah. More Kennedys, I think, were also yeah. killed. <laughs> so you see it, it really starts to drop. And then at Carter, it's like at, basically it's at its lowest for that time. It's like down in the 30s. Which is still interesting because he's still neoliberalism comes into play like basically with Reagan. Um, we see it actually go up for Reagan. Yeah. Bush senior administration, it's up a little bit, kind of another peak around the 45, still way off the high of like Kennedy. Really drops in Clinton when looks like when he's having his scandals, but towards the end of it starts to come up. Yeah. And then you see a huge inflection point again at 2001, <laughs> which I see as being um, 9-11 and then 9/11, yeah. the whatever Iraq war. Um, and then just it just basically has plummeted from there and it's stuck in the 20s through the end of Bush, uh, through Obama and into Trump. So I don't know. To me, I see that. I see like those inflection points as being huge events in in American life and not necessarily the effects of economy or um, I don't know, government policy on well-being. But that's that's just my interpretation, I guess. Yeah, no. Um, I think he, he, he goes into that um, under the section called crisis. Um, how like opinion about war, like changes for like society. So if you, if you were to say 2001 and I'm trying to find here, when was the Vietnam Vietnam war was 19, yeah. 55 to 90, uh, 75. So during that time you also see decline in government trust. So like the same people not wanted, um, not want to go into war. Um, what was the name for the people who are Dodgers? People are trying to dodge, uh, dodge the draft. Um, and I think you can have a, see a similar correlation between the Iraq war, um, Iraq and Afghanistan war, in which there was, there was a little bit of a peak and then it kind of starts to dip and like, why are we sending our, our troops overseas? Um, 
So that's definitely a factor. I, I, you know, have I do to- want to, before we jump to the 70s, because I think that's where we're going to really, like, I'm going to try to dig into the economics of this. Um, but I wanted to go through his, his thing called Three Catches. Oh, yeah. Which I think were actually kind of, like, they were kind of critical of what he was complimenting in this post-war mm-hmm. um, period of, of government uh, public policy. But he has his first catch, he says, is basically the Weber catch. So Max Weber, um, and he's saying reliance of the welfare state on bureaucratic structures and rationalization of social life. So this critique is sort of that, I mean, Weber's big thing is like disenchantment. Um, and so I think what he's saying is like capitalism and modernity, the critique here is that it leads people to this sense of disenchantment where they they become basically like detached from their actions working in some corporation. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I mean, you can't have a strong society. I don't think if you have good bureaucracy, so it's, it's like almost necessary, like as a state and as a country and as a government to have strong bureaucracies. But, you know, the, the consequence of that is that you're just kind of a cog or, you know, another brick in the wall, if you want to call it that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Cause I, I guess what we've yeah. kind of declined to talk about, he talks about a lot or we haven't got there yet is, is the rise of corporations. Um, and basically how after World War II, corporations started to be, become very powerful. Right. And, and how we organize society. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like there's, there's definitely, there's like the industrial kind of like revolution, like with the cars and stuff. But that like starts to really pick up um, cities like Detroit. But then we also have corporatization of like places like Silicon Valley and like tech companies coming up as well. So, but still both, both bureaucracies with, um, people receiving their benefits through these bureaucracies. So like your, your health, your, your pensions come through these bureaucracies. Um, and then he, he talks about the bureaucracy or the corporatization or corporations is these corporations are serving shareholders. So people who have invested into the company, it doesn't ultimately serve employees, customers, or their communities. And also another argument that these corporations don't care about the environment either. So yeah, it definitely creates a disenfranchisement for, for lots of people. Um, but then like, if you're to leave a, a stable corporate corporate job, like what's your option? Start a small business. Like, you know, is that going to be a stable? You know, right. Now? And I think that's why it's such, it's the catch to the welfare state, because if you're, if you're talking about how great pensions are, well, pensions are provided by these large corporations. Basically, like he talks about Fordism and how he's he's sort of positive on Fordism. How um, Ford created like uh, created a lot of benefits for its workers and sort of created like like vertically integrated the the business and created a lot of efficiencies in the business and then was able to kind of use it to improve the lives of his workers. 
but then yeah i mean i think social life ends up being wrapped in your work like you end up becoming basically a worker yeah and then your whole a lot of your you're very reliant on the corporation for your welfare right and then i guess like where does like the support from the government come and like is it I mean, even a 501k plan comes through your company, right? Like you can't just have a 501k through the government. You have to be working. So part of your taxes. So, yeah. I, but I, even, and I think this Weber critique is even right at democracy. Like it says here, he wrote bureaucracy inevitably accompanies modern mass democracy. And here, I think modern mass democracy, one of the distinguishing characteristics of it is its scale. So as the U.S. grew in population and as they industrialized, the scale of like democracy had to become a bureaucracy. It had to kind of become a machine to run itself. But he says, so yeah, a company's modern mass democracy in contrast to the democratic self-government of small homogenous units. So I think that's where he's kind of contrasting that to smaller communities that were able to govern themselves democratically. Um, like a small, say like a city or something where they have relatively common, um, relatively common like value systems and similar problems. Um, this is a more, this is a setting probably where democracy works a little bit better than on, a national scale and without as much bureaucracy in between. Mm -hmm. I guess one thing he didn't, it just popped in my head. One thing he didn't mention is like the whole citizens United case in which like our corporations, people, it's like, yeah, that's weird too. I was going to, yeah, I was going to wait a second to go there, but like, yeah, let's just let this flow naturally. So that, it's I interesting mean, like, to me that he argues that that was a neoliberal stance to let corporations be viewed as um, individuals. Right. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I mean... Yeah. Okay. So basically, I guess let's give some background. So like, what does that mean? It meant basically that corporations could claim that they had First Amendment rights, so rights to free speech, and then through free speech, they were able to donate to political um, campaigns and organizations. Right. So yeah, that that's yeah. definitely a, a very interesting um, precedent to set. But that's only until 2010 that I think we, the, you know, that, that whole case started to happen. That happened in 2010? Yeah, the Supreme Court's ruling in the Citizens oh. United versus Federal Election Commission in 2020 upholding the rights of corporations to make unlimited political expenditures under the First Amendment. Um, there have been several calls for a constitutional amendment to abolish corporate personhood. Okay. So, um, there's, a, I mean, I, I I can hardly speak on the like the, the matter like professionally because there's there's a lot of jargon there, but it's 
it, it, I mean, it just goes to show that if you have corporations and they're rising in power um, financially in terms of people becoming more dependent on them, and then two, even having political influence, you know, um, how does that make like the average person feel in a democracy? Um, I, I think it, it, it can des definitely disenfranchise people from seeing their voice. Well, like, okay, if Pepsi or like, I don't know, Coca-Cola have all this like, you know, political sway or Microsoft and Apple, right? Um, Where's my identity in all of this? Right. Yeah, I mean, it makes the, the person's contribution to like a political campaign or movement seem a little it's bit inconsequent. Yeah, yeah, because they obviously can't compete with the amount of money and influence that these corporations have. Right. It, it's, it's really funny. Um, like if you ever go to like a young Republicans or like young Democrats thing, it's just like, oh, we need to like just collect, you know, little five and ten dollar <laughs> bills from the kids. Right. Yeah. And it's just kind of a cute like posture, I think, for for parties to say like, oh, we have like these like young people joining in. But like, you know, they're they're after the big endorsements. They're after the big names to write those checks because that's what's ultimately going to get you on the big screen and get you, you know, all famous and whatnot. So this is where I I get what he's saying when he starts talking about neoliberalism. Maybe we can come back to the catches at some point, but yeah. we'll skip ahead to neoliberalism here. So he talks about kind of the ills that it's done, but a lot of his examples, man, are just like, they're almost like antithetical to his point. They almost like yeah. completely undermine his points because most of the points he's making um and i'll look through for an example in a second but he's talking about actions that were taken um with government assistance which is sort of in my in my opinion that is the neoliberals want minimal like if you could boil down their economic philosophy it's basically that they want as little government interference in markets as possible. Yeah. I don't know. What did you, what did you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, don't know. I, I, I think it's, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely sounds like he, he wants, you know, less government involvement, but at the same right, Ray, it's like he's like, hey, look at all these benefits of government involvement. So I'm not sure if I'm finding a clear position from him in terms of what he's advocating for to obviously regenerate a, a, a democracy. Um, well, he, okay, so when he gets into financialization, I think this is where I really start to sort of disagree with him or have um, a real pushback to his argument. So I would say that neoliberalism was sort of a, it was a reaction to this, um, this movement of government involvement in life and society, which he was saying is good. So this is, this is basically like Keynesian economics saying that, the government needs to stimulate economic activity and provide for the welfare 
of its people, which is all well and good. But then he comes to this crisis in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, and he I feel like he kind of tries to throw it under the rug as saying like, oh, it was an oil crisis, and this is why like stagflation happened, like OPEC like limited the amount of oil going out. And so we can't really blame the economic decisions is what I'm thinking he says. So we come to the seventies and there's major what's called stagflation. So basically we have a recession and at the same time, interest rates start to rise. Okay. And now he talks about how the federal reserve bank takes this huge stand and decides to yeah. just increase rates ridiculously. And he's saying how um, financial institutions and banks make so much money off of this. And then he uses this as a critique of neoliberalism, um, basically by saying like, well, the banks weren't regulated. Well, this action is like primarily determined by the Federal Reserve's actions, which is, uh, I mean, it's kind of a gray area whether this is, whether the Federal Reserve is part of the government. But for the sake of this argument, basically the Federal Reserve is associated with at least our federal government. So I don't understand how he can say, I I don't think a neoliberal would even be in support of Federal Reserve action in this case necessarily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so that like he's this is really interesting this is why his points he's bringing up are really interesting but i don't agree with his conclusion so he talks about um (laughs) he talks about how these rates the rates increased so people basically at some point that were reliant on debt had to sell off their assets and he talks about how the financial industries buy all these people's assets at fire sale uh, costs. Um, And he talks about how, okay. So he says, due to this fact, um, it creates a decline in American manufacturing over the next 40 years. The proportion of wealth held in the form of physical assets, factories, for example, went from 75 to 25%. While the proportion in financial instruments went from 25%. To seventy five percent, and he talks about the decline of industry. Um, Deindustrialization de- brought closures and lost jobs to one industry after another. Unions were undermined by changing government policies. Okay, he talks about domination of finance. So I think that that is an issue, and it's very interesting to see that we lost a lot of physical assets and then it shifted over into our financial industries. However, I don't see how he can try to pin that on neoliberal policy. Because isn't the whole point of neoliberalism is that you have your own property, you have a physical asset that grows intergenerationally. So would it neoliberal policies actually encourage the acquiring of assets? Am I missing well, something? One, I think I think yeah. his his time frame is off. I guess most people would consider like the heyday of neoliberalism to be when Reagan took office. Right. And 
and it was a reaction towards what happened in the 70s, I think. It was a reaction to this stagflation. And a lot of people would probably say even like uh, that Trump had like neoliberal tendencies. And it, so it's interesting that he's talking about how deindustrialization was such a problem, um, not to sort of like be an apologist for Trump here, but it is his policies were to bring back industry and to cut rates to cause investment in on American soil, basically. Mm-hmm. So that that's where I'm differing from his stance that this was a problem created by neoliberalism. You could say it was a problem with um, financial regulation, but again, finance, like all of these things are related to government intervention. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, no. I, I think you're. I, th- I think you're spot on. I mean, I think that the like the, the government has a has a say in terms of how we determine financialization and stuff. And I think that um, yeah. the this is a critique of neoliberalism as well. Is that it is sort of a It's sort of a very broad generalization, right? Because, let me see how to phrase this. There there never will be a completely free market. Like, there's always going to be influence of, of government, whatever that means. Like, mm-hmm. there's always going to be some sort of influence. So you can never really have a free market. So that's why I think some of these, like, neoliberal policies don't work. Um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the 08 crash, did he? Like, unless I missed it, I I didn't find a whole lot of language. Not a whole lot, no. And, but I guess what, okay, so this is what I was going to say. The, so since you never have a free market, if you kind of paint this facade of a free market, but then <laughs> through government intervention, different industries or different large corporations become advantaged. I think that's where you have the problem. So you paint this picture of we have a free market, but different government policies slant this free market towards advantaging some corporations or some industries over others. Okay, that's where you probably can make a critique. Well, once again, to talk about OA, it's like $5 trillion just went totally missing and no accountability was, no one was arrested except for one guy um, after the OA crash. Uh, and we bailed out the banks, right? Like they, they didn't, they didn't break up the banks, right? The people who got okay, us. So that's what I'm saying is like, that is the most antithetical to neoliberalism as possible. Like bailing out somebody that's too large to fail is the exact opposite of letting the market run its course. If somebody makes risky decisions, okay, that's fine. Let them make risky decisions. Let them make all their money. But if they make too risky of a decision and they fail, you kind of have to let them fail. You'd have to face the consequences of that. Yeah. But, okay, 
to make the other argument, and again, I would say this is Keynesian. This is not, it's not neoliberal. They are so large that it would have such a negative societal effect. Like it would trash the entire economy, like the lives of so many people that you, that the government does step in and they do bail people out. Mm -hmm. In terms of financialization too, and like he's talking like retirement plans, health insurance, things like this right now. So many of, if you have, um, Whatever your entire retirement, sorry, whatever your retirement money is in, most likely, especially if it's passively managed or something, it's in all of these large corporations or it's somehow filtered through all these corporations. So like if you let banks like that go out, like you could see everyone's retirement just disappearing. Mm hmm. Well, you kind of see it with, you know, with inflation, like people are looking at like, okay, like I'm going to get a social security or I'm getting a pension, but is it really going to be worth anything when I go out to collect it? Right? Yeah. So there's, there's that side of it as well. I just, I, I listened to a whole show even on, uh, it was quite a show. Um, it was literally called F Milton Friedman. So Milton Friedman is like, sort of one of the fathers of neoliberalism. Right. And they kind of tried to attack him the whole show, but they never, like, they never actually, like, landed any punches. It was, it's pretty interesting. What was the, what was the podcast? Um, it's called Unfing the Republic. <laughs> it was like, as far, I just wanted to hear, like, a totally different opinion. Like, yeah, um, yeah it was quite interesting. Interesting. I guess we can kind of start moving into. Well, let's 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 wrap up. I think we have to wrap up the three catches. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, sorry, I I don't know if I. And what I'm is what I'm saying making sense, or am I kind of ranting? Well, no, I. I think I'm saying I, a lot of things, but I'm not necessarily like hammering a point home. So. No, I. I, I I don't. I don't think you can because it's. It, we're kind of living in a, in a little bit of a paradox in terms of, you know, whether or not like are we against, you know, big corporations? Or are we for big corporations? Right? Because there's so many things that we benefit from from corporations. Or like, think about when you when you pump gas, uh, all your technology. Your food, right? It, it's all dependent on these like big, big corporations. And if you, even if you say like, well, okay, we have a variety of options when you go down a grocery, a grocery store um, aisle, and you're trying to choose between your different chips. Like, still, all those different brands of chips are still owned by the same like umbrella organization. Um, yeah. So, like, there, there's a lot of things that we like about like these corporations, um, but there's also a lot of things that we you know, we're starting to recognize that there's a problem too as well. So I think it's hard to truly make a stance on what's happening with our economy and what's happening with our finances. But I think it's, it's important. Like you, you kind of mentioned pointing out like the different holes um, and maybe contradictions in the system in that we want to have people to have their own land. We want people to have their own assets yet. Um, 
we're turning towards financialization. People are losing their number of assets. We're, we're losing the number of assets within our country. Um, uh, labor is, is decreasing, right? Even right now in COVID, it's like so hard to find people who are willing to work. Um, we just pumped a bunch of stimulus money um, into, into our country. Um, yeah. So, and, and everyone, everyone cheers, like, you know, people say like, oh, Uncle Bernie, you know, he just gives free pizza to everybody. And then, you know, everyone rejoices and we think this is a solution. Um, but then we, then we also have to suffer the consequences or we start seeing the consequence, consequences of these policies. Um, and sometimes it's done under the guise of neoliberalism and sometimes it isn't. Um, but I... I think it's just a matter of time just to kind of see how the story unfolds and you can only just pick out different points and start saying like, Hey, well, look at this, look at this. But, um, yeah, I think at this point as unsexy of an answer as it is, like you just have to have some moderation and you have to have balance. Like we're so the government and corporations and the individual are so intrinsically linked at this point that we need some give and go mm-hmm. from all parties involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd like to see some, yeah. some moderate economic policy, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, it, it would be great. I mean, to, to have, you know, somebody who's like well-versed, like someone who's an economist, like, and just a general fact, it's just like people's financial literacy is incredibly low. Right. I just met with, um, a financial advisor from, I think it was Western Mutual. He just DM'd me on LinkedIn and I just like, he was like, come over. And I was like, sure, it's, two, it's a two mile bike ride from campus. And I sat in and he just started talking to me about like um, 401ks um, and like uh, life insurance and stuff. And I was like, yeah. okay, that's cool and stuff. But like most people have very minimal financial education. So um, I think if we're going to talk about regenerating our democracy is maybe the first step is getting people more informed and educated about economics and finances. Yeah. I think, I think at a university level or maybe high school level, you should almost mandate at least in a macroeconomics one-on-one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's kind of like a subclass really. I mean, I remember some kids, they took like some business classes in high school. Um, I mean, I did my minor in entrepreneurship at, at Toledo. Um, but it's like, you're doing accounting, you're doing like, you know, some other peripheral stuff in terms of like starting a family business and stuff, but it doesn't really teach you about how does our economic system. It's interesting because some of the tools that economists use, they don't work as well if the public knows how they work. Mm. So for instance, one thing, some people, I don't know who to paint this at, but they think that it's not good if basically the public knows what a true inflation rate is or something like this. Because, so if you know that inflation is occurring and say your general population knows this, they're going to start asking for raises. Okay, and then this is going to, snowball inflation so if you start seeing wage growth and they start spending more you actually accelerate inflation so to some extent actually like 
some of the tools used to combat inflation don't work as well if the public knows that inflation is occurring. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I guess another footnote, as, as you were speaking about um, like inflation, um, it was under Nixon, right, that we got off the gold standard. Correct. Yeah, and that looking back again at that like government trust chart and stuff, <laughs> so you also see well, that dive happen. I mean that the debate about a gold standard has happened since like the inception of the United States, basically. But from to give the brief bit that I know about that, I believe what happened is. During World War II, so in my opinion, the U.S. is very opportunistic with the world wars. Mm. Um, we kind of came in after the wars were like, had already been fought for several years and kind of cleaned up and then reaped the economic benefits in basically every situation. And I think there's some people that are a little conspiratorial that would say that, you know, there's a lot of war profiteering going on these times but to not get off into that tangent so i think what happened was um when we remained neutral in world war ii a lot of european nations were sending us their gold on deposit right mm. and we were financing the war in a lot of nations like we were talking about canes at the beginning canes went out the british government was completely out of money and he went out and got a huge loan from jp morgan of what's now morgan chase but anyways so when we were a third party we were basically taking and holding everyone's gold and then um kind of at the end of the war there's this conference called the Bretton woods conference and this is where like a lot of the world economy as it is now, like basically the new world order of the economy was set in place. And that's where they pegged the dollar to gold and set the dollar as the U.S. or sorry, set the world reserve currency as the U.S. dollar. Mm. So like, I think how this worked basically is the U.S. held on to a lot of gold. The reserve currency of the world was the dollar. Okay. And so what happened when Nixon took us off of the gold standard is a lot of nations started asking for their gold back and we were starting to run out of gold because you could exchange dollars for gold. Okay. Up until that point. Right. And then there was kind of a run on the gold because confidence in the dollar started getting shaky. Mm. And he said, and we can't let all the gold go out. So they just pulled the plug on it. Like nations would actually send like boats over to come and collect their gold, basically. Yeah. And then they just said, "No, we're not. We're not going to give gold back anymore." Gold, gold is worthless. You, you guys don't need gold. You just guys just need more U.S. dollars. Right. And now we have crypto now, which is like fake gold. Yes. On, on a screen. Which is probably also another scam that has happened. <laughs> or it's not. See, I think what happens yeah. with these things is like, I think crypto could be a really great technology, but you know, as 
I think it's probably been manipulated to a pretty great extent. Well, there was there was recently a scandal, right? Like the whole yeah, uh, there was a huge scandal <laughs> that basically blew up like most of the crypto community. And it would be interesting to see a full investigation of that to see if there's any government involvement in the formation of crypto or some of these crypto exchanges. You you have to watch. Um, have you watched The Big Short with uh, with your doppelganger? What's his name? <laughs> Who's my doppelganger? Christian, Christian Bale's Bale. my doppelganger. Yeah, Christian Bale's okay. your doppelganger. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've seen The Big Short. Oh man, it, it was really funny. Um, at the end of the movie, <laughs> it was like I forgot the name of the the character whose brother like suicided or whatever. Um, and he's like, oh, you know, they're, they're going to lock everybody up. And yeah. he's like, no, no, they're not going to lock anybody up. And they're like, but Mark was, I think his name was Mark. He's like, but Mark was wrong, right? All the big banks got broken up. Everyone got arrested, you know, justice and all this happened, right? Um, and then it was like, no, just kidding. <laughs> Nobody got arrested. We bailed out the banks. And honestly, I think that's what's going to happen with crypto too. Like, um, I mean, I have my crypto in Gemini, which is an American um, exchange. Um, but if, if that were to tank or go under, right, I mean. My crypto was in BlockFi and they went bankrupt. So all oh. of my assets have been frozen for like the last three or four months. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Somehow they were connected to the, um, to the FX. Yeah. Wow. Sketchy, man. I've, I've, I know lots of people who've, who've lost big money, just a lot of scams on the internet with, with crypto. But I mean, I, I think crypto was a response to a loss of uh, trust in the government. People are like, oh, we need to move from the US dollar to, to crypto. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that money might be the next thing to be reevaluated, like in terms of these institutions. Like we were kind of talking about losing institutional trust. Like, We've kind of questioned um, the institutions of religion and government and things like that. And I think money is just next. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, fiat money, it's just all about faith. Or if you <laughs> don't want to be as charitable and say faith, it's about who has the army to back up their currency at some point. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, that was very interesting, though. I, I didn't know about that World War II connection that a lot of Europeans were actually sending their gold. Yeah. So I, I thought that was, that was interesting. We had a nugget. I'd like to look at... Yeah, there's probably flaws in how I explained that, but I think the gist of it was pretty good. And actually, Keynes was at that Bretton Woods and negotiated on mm. behalf of Britain. I think I need to read more about this Keynes guy. I mean, oh, he's like the biggest guy in economics of all time. I just, I just typed in Keynes on Google and it like popped up raising Keynes. Uh, it's K E Y N E S. K E N E Y S. So yeah, this this also is where the IMF and like the World Bank were established. Hmm. And it was, I think it was sort of an institution that they used to rebuild um, 
Europe after the war. Interesting. So yeah, let's see. I'm just reading this on Wikipedia. So uh, Bretton Woods system was the first example of a fully negotiated monetary order intended to govern monetary relationships among independent states. Bretton Woods system required countries to guarantee convertibility of their currencies into U.S. dollars. So basically, everybody in this agreement, they pegged their currency to a U.S. dollar to within 1% of fixed parity rates with the dollar convertible to gold bullion for foreign governments and central banks. At, and they set the price at 35 U.S. dollars per troy ounce of gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, in order to do that, I mean, it's kind of like a bank. The U.S. has to have gold. <laughs> right, right. And then when you just start printing money, you can see how some governments can start to lose um, <laughs> their trust I, in the dollar. I, I think I heard this really, I'm not sure if it was a Joe Rogan podcast, but he they were talking about this kid who was selling $1 bills on, on the internet. He would take a picture of Michael Jordan, stick it on a $1 bill and sell it for like 10 or $15. Really? <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was like, I don't That's know. That's interesting. It's funny. <laughs> I don't know. The way that they negotiated after these wars was pretty interesting. And I think it really like kind of laid the foundations for the world that we see today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, there's, I, you could find so many arguments against like federal reserve and then this Bretton Woods agreement and things like that. But I mean, the thing is, I mean, I mean, bringing it back to democracy at the end of the day, right. It's not like it's you or me sitting or just like the people sitting at the table making decisions about money. No. You know, like <laughs> we, we, we have a vote in terms of how money is spent. We have a vote on terms of budgets, right? But we don't really have a say in terms of how these financial instruments work, right? Like, you know, something's really interesting that's like happened in Egypt um, like over the past hundred years. Like there, there used to be a coin. It, it was pretty much like a cent. Right. That currency, the, the cent currency in Egypt is no longer used because right now the Egyptian pound is 30 pounds to the dollar. Right. So you, you wouldn't carry these cents with you anymore. The lowest currency that you carry around is either 50 cents, which is very, very rare, or um, or a dollar, like an, an mm -hmm. Egyptian pound, one Egyptian pound. Right. So like. We don't like the, the average Egyptian citizen or the average American citizen doesn't truly have a say in terms of like, you know, do we use a $2 bill or not? Like no one voted for the $2 bill to get voted out of extinction. Right. right? At least to my knowledge, I, I never heard of that. Um, so one other yeah. thing I'd like to say <laughs> while we're on on this type of policy or on this discussion of money is... Um, Basically how through how 
printing money is a tax on your citizens. Every time the U.S. prints money, that is basically a tax on anybody that's holding a U.S. dollar because you're devaluing a dollar. That's a very good point. I, yeah. I mean, like, using that language really puts it in perspective. Well, that's like, it doesn't even make sense why they still collect income tax. You know, like when you're, you could, they could print their whole budget because they run a deficit constantly. Right. Well, that's the other thing too. I don't know how the, how you could argue that any economist now is neoliberal when we run a deficit, which is basically a Keynesian invention of that governments should run deficits to fund all these things. I'm going to pull up the U.S. death clock. I suppose the main neoliberal contribution, I think, is basically like the interaction between interest rates and um, people's spending. So our U.S. national debt clock. I think also this is interesting. I, I would have to look this stat up, but something like 80% of all dollars ever in existence were printed in like the last five years. Yes, yes. I've heard that. Um, Which is absurd. So, okay. That, uh, I'm, I have the, the U.S. national debt clock pulled up right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's millions, billions, so it's $31 trillion U.S. national debt. It's crazy. It is. <laughs> oh, they have an app, too. So to all of our listeners, if you want the U.S. national debt clock, you can <laughs> download the mobile app. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, that's enough of my rant on the <laughs> on printing money and things like that. So, but yeah, I mean, I think all that points to again how people could be totally disenfranchised. Like you feel like you can't even control your own assets you can't control your own money what's the point in saving your money when it's going to be devalued as it's printed like over time your money is basically depreciating mm-hmm. which also works because that incentivizes spending right people think they have which it, it, you yeah. you can't argue that that is actually good economic policy like it's better for dollars to be moving than to be sitting. Yeah. You're going to create, in theory, you should be creating more goods that way. Technically. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's fair that you're pressured into spending. Right. Um, I feel like it should come from people's desire to spend on things that, you know, that they need. Right. So if someone's like, Oh, I have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Uh, I got to buy an asset, right? Not because they generally want an asset, but because they're almost forced into buying one. Right. Or like, I'll just create a company, right? Or I'm just going to invent something because like, what the heck? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think from that, you could develop basically a critique of consumerism or how there's so much pressure on consuming things and how important GDP is to our economy. Right. 
like just always like you could say like the goal is just always like keep moving that gdp like keep creating more right i mean we, we don't study like our society and other metrics in terms of the health of our society like if we have a good gdp then everything must be going well yeah and there's like a lot of smaller fields of economics that are trying to come up with ways to measure that like they have what's it called they have something that's like it just gets weird because you have to do like a lot of like gymnastics to come up with these like weird metrics but something that like measures like pleasure or like well-being or something like that and then trying to value it there but i guess okay so to get us back on track this kind of segues into externalities i guess so the way I see externalities are basically um, consequences or net negatives of business that aren't actually like captured on a balance sheet. Um, so I don't know, like a big one would say like, uh, let's see. Okay. Let's say you're mining or something like that. And in the course of mining, you pollute like the water supply of, the surrounding area okay in the past maybe if there's no regulation like that would you would never incur that cost even though you're basically like forcing a cost on everybody else around you so you have no incentive to change um your action because you're not paying for it but you're still creating like a negative externality so i that's why like he he then takes that to say like okay, we should regulate more and maybe we should, but I think you could also argue this would be regulation of a sort, but if you wanted to go like the free market route, you could say like, um, if there was a free market and people were pissed that like lead was getting in their water, they would create a company that would somehow value like how much, that led negatively affected them and somehow figure out a way to charge the company for it. Right. Yeah. If you're being damaged by something, you should get paid for it. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be interesting. I, th- I think that this is where, like, I think we should start to take into account negative externalities. Um, I guess that's sort of my anti- I'm I'm relatively pro capitalist, but those are some things that I could see. Those are some like decent critiques of capitalism. I guess I I just want, yeah. that's sort of the root of Marxism and to some extent. But it's been a while since I've been involved in that. <laughs> I was a commie in college. <laughs> no, I yeah. <laughs> I, I want to read this paragraph. I like this paragraph from the externalities section. I just want to read it real quick. Yeah. Um, when factories close, neoliberals oppose public subsidies to maintain services. When communities collapse, they say to let them go. If workers need jobs, they, would, they should just move to wherever the jobs were, even if it means starting over with few resources. If there are any good jobs, unemployment benefits should be kept to a minimum, perhaps the minimum for subsistence, 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 
perhaps the minimum necessary to avoid social unrest so that workers will take whatever jobs are offered at whatever wages employers wanted to pay. I, I guess my understanding of what's being said is that neoliberals by saying like, oh, we need a free market is saying just people need to adapt, right? That whatever, you know, um, I'm trying to find a good positive coyote cast word, but, but any, any struggles or troubles that are happening in the world that it's, it's on the individual to figure it out, right? It's not on the big institutions, the governments to um, help people transition through these, you know, phases in the economy or mm -hmm. phases in the market, which, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, people are going to say like, okay, well, how is the government helping me during this transition? Like, how, how am I being helped in this situation? Um, and then people find their help through other means, right? So like, you're going to find a job through, you know, somebody, you know, just through your network, mm -hmm. you're going to try to find a job. You're going to try to find a way to relocate by, you know, talking to, I don't know, doing your own research in terms of like, opportunities for jobs. Yeah. I think businesses and corporations have gotten better at this. I think that... That's true, yeah. At some point, it's going to burn. Like, <laughs> having bad ethics as a company at some point will burn you like there's only so many times that you can just like close down a factory and close down a whole community eventually i feel like that's going to come back and bite you to some extent like there yeah. still are some positives to treating your people well mm -hmm. i don't know that'd be an interesting um someone could actually figure out like if treating your employees well like increases their productivity or something like something like that or like if having like a positive presence in communities actually increases profits for a company i feel like just my gut says it probably would i i i i <laughs> I don't see how it would hurt your company's reputation by giving back. Like, well, you're going to spend like you would spend more money, I guess would be the, the thing. Like, I just, I don't know that like penny pinching and cutting costs. <sighs> it just depends. Like there's, there's probably some times when corporations do have to do that, but I think on the whole, they, they're starting to understand, like it's still as good to treat people well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and pay them like a living a living wage, or pay them. If, if anything, I think what forces their hand to that extent is um, kind of his critique of like one shareholders demanding maximum profit, and two how they how they utilize debt. Like if they ever become beholden to the debt that they have. Yeah. And then I know he talked about how corporations serve only shareholders, not employees, and how that was, I think he's, he had a Milton Friedman quote in there saying, like, it is, like, 
the business's responsibility just to turn profit. Like it's not their responsibility to do anything else. Like by turning profit, this will benefit society and things like that. But I don't know. I, in, in some of the business, I think the, it's like in the, um, air of business culture and stuff. Now I, I believe it's called stakeholder theory, basically where shareholders are just one of your stakeholders. You also have your employees and you have, uh, the communities that you do business in mm -hmm. and how each of them are important. Or I think you've been kind of slightly mentioned it, how like the environment could become a stakeholder as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's actually interesting in our, um, in our landscape architecture program, we talked about how, um, there's been instances where if someone committed like, like someone cut down like a sacred tree. I think this happened in Louisiana. At, I think Louisiana State University, a group of students or whatever, uh, I'm not sure if there were students from the school or from an outside school came and like killed or poisoned a historic tree mm. and they were held in trial. And the court case was like, you know, those students <laughs> versus the tree. And they had a plaintiff representing the tree as like an own entity. Yeah. So imagine if it was like Pepsi versus, I don't know, some aquifer or like. Well, yeah, that'd yeah, be interesting. <laughs> I mean, if, if you think about it, I think people are becoming a little bit wiser. Like say you run a major like ag business or something like that. Yeah. And you're worried about, okay, so let me, I'll just like do this. Like say you could turn like a little bit more yield like each year, each year, each year, but eventually you completely deplete the soil and like you can't, it's gone. Like then it's just a like dead, uh, like your real estate is worthless or something like that. You have yeah. incentive to actually like. Um, be good to the environment. Yeah. To be good to the environment because, but, and this is a critique I would say of, shareholders and things like that is that you can have a short-term vision to where you might want to just turn that profit quick um, because that's what you have to do right now. So I think we need to find a way to incorporate longer term thinking mm -hmm. into how we do business. And again, I, yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be, it'd be good if we could create like, some sort of financial tool or some sort of cost where um, that starts to get put in, that starts to uh, show up basically on your balance sheet now. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's policies, right, for like decarbonization, net zero, right, and, you know, rewarding people for... Yeah making things quote unquote more sustainable yeah and i think we can go too far on that sometimes but yeah like i they call it esg ratings now have started to become right uh sort of influential on corporations right and their shareholders <laughs> it's funny though like you know recently with germany like the germans were like all about you know, environmental friendly policies and solar panels and wind farms and all that. And then 
war in Ukraine happens, <laughs> they're like, well, turn on the furnace, boys. <laughs> you know, coal. at the end of the day, if you're going to freeze to death or starve to death, it's really great to have uh, corn and oil. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it feels really great to put in some of these policies and sustainability things now, but and if you don't have bread and uh, you don't have heat in the winter, it's going to be a problem. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think you can swing way too far in the other direction. I know there's a big shortage of fertilizer and... What's that at? Uh, a Southeast Asian country. Basically, I think they banned the use of fertilizer or the production of some sort of fertilizer. And, man, I wish I could remember that. But they just had a real problem. That was just earlier this year. But yeah, it's interesting too how sort of uh, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka, yeah, like how already developed nations are now forcing that on currently developing nations. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting when we when we talk about the finances and stuff. It's like I, I feel like a lot of the like the. I like to call it the cultural wars that happen right? that we talk about like on a citizen level, right? It, it almost feels so insecure or not insecure, insignificant to like all these, like, you know, to like the economy, like these, these big questions about like our economy and policies and stuff like that. Um, that always makes you wonder. It's like, is, are those issues a distraction Oh, you're saying like social? Yeah, like like social issues and stuff. I mean, and that's kind of my opinion that a lot of them are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I but it's it's hard because I think a lot of those things affect like some group of people all the time, mm -hmm. and. I don't know. I don't ever really feel affected by those issues. So yeah, like I can say, yeah, it's a distraction or something, but there probably right. is some group of people where that is actually affecting their day-to-day -day life. But in the grand scheme of things, I think that it <laughs> it's coming up now so much, like everybody's well-fed, well-clothed, not everybody, but like just sort of on the whole, like right. in America, we're pretty well-fed, well-housed, well-clothed for the most part have jobs and things like that so mm -hmm. now we find other issues right <laughs> yeah it's like when you're you know um you have time to like argue right or yeah i mean and kind of like a like a hierarchy of needs thing like yeah if you're starving or something like we're probably not going to be like arguing about like climate change or different social issues <laughs> And he admits that. I think the, the authors in this book, they say like how people who are living hand to mouth, they're, they don't have time to participate in a democracy, right? Um, so all the issues of participating in a democracy or uh, being involved. Um, yeah, I don't even, 
like, what does it even mean to participate in a democracy other than voting? Like, I don't think you have to talk about politics like 24 seven or something. Like you don't have to be like tweeting about politics or something like this to participate in a democracy, in my opinion. I don't, I mean, uh, I think to participate in your society, like as early as you know, you're in high school or even junior high, there's opportunities to have leadership, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm sure if you compared, like for example, um, maybe like a, a you know a monarchy like Saudi Arabia, like how many times during your education, whether in high school or in college, do you have opportunities to start an organization, lead it? Yeah, your organization is heard by administrate administrators and there's like a there's a hierarchy in terms of the leadership pretty much if, if you're part of the saudi family then you're you know you're well to do and if you're not well you know you're still saudi arabian but you don't really have a say you're not really encouraged or facilitated to have a say so i i think in our society even outside of politics you have social groups you have nonprofits. um you have societies, uh, secret societies, public societies that you can join, uh, fraternal organizations, um, running clubs, like athletic clubs. I mean, your gym, you know, all these things are just all opportunities for you to, you know, show your leadership skills. Yeah. Probably even the military. I mean, um, some of the books that I was reading um, with John Davis last semester or not reading with him, but the books that he gave me to read is that if you, it was, and it's actually a good segue into our next um, chapter, the authenticity meritocracy, but like French soldiers or French generals, they were usually French generals because they were, they were aristocrats, right? So they, they inherited that title from their father, right? And and that education and that wealth and yada, 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 right? Um, But with the uh, dissemination of engineering knowledge, Anybody could master the science of engineering, um, uh, master the science of military engineering. So it came into question, well, you have this aristocrat or you have this nobody, right, who is now just as educated as this aristocrat. Who do you choose um, to become the next big general of of your army or your military? Yeah. I will, I'll let you lead into this authenticity and meritocracy because I hate to admit it. I haven't even read this section yet. So no, but you, you go and I'm sure I'll have comments (laughs) for it. Well, it's, um, I mean, he's, he starts off pretty much the chapter talking about, uh, freedom, equality, and solidarity. And in the notes I put in parentheses, you know, solidarity sounds like fraternity. Right. And I would have to, Google what's the exact French word, you know, the French words of, you know, you know, equalité, fraternité, however they yeah, say what it. Yeah, was this, this was a motto of something, right? Or no? It's, it's, it's the French, it's, it's the motto of the French, okay. uh, French, you know, government, if that's what you want to call it. Um, or maybe the French Revolution. I think that's what a lot of it was, was about. Like these three things is what the people at the time demanded. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's still incredibly relevant to to Western democracies. This idea that you know to be free, to be equal, um, and there is a sense of 
uh, I like the word groupthink. Uh, it comes from Ibn Khaldun, um, this idea that we all feel like we're one entity. We're not fighting one another. Um, so, uh, you know, he kind of talks about how these, in some ways in our society, one of these three can come out of balance, right? So um, he talks about authenticity as people's ability or people respecting their path of other people, right? So if I come out and I say, um, I am, give me a, give me an identity. Uh, for, um, <laughs> I'm trying to stay away from the thing that just keeps on popping in my head. We'll just say it. <laughs> if I come out and I say, I'm gay, right? Yeah. You, you have to respect that path, right? Um, and that is my identity, right? Okay. So um, you have to show respect to all of these differing identities um, in order to, uh, you know, because this is how I'm going to fulfill my authentic self, right? And the moment that you say, no, I don't respect your identity, I don't like your identity, um, then you could be seen as infringing on people's ability, infringing on people's freedom, and henceforth, uh, infringing on people's ability to be authentic to okay. who they believe who they are. Uh, and by extension, that creates fractures in our solidarity. So if we were to say, uh, because you're not white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant, then you can't uh, be, you can't show solidarity with people who are outside of those descriptions, right? And that's why I think we, there's always this like renewal of xenophobia in America that as soon as there's some kind of natural event, you have new people coming in, right? So like the Irish, I think they went through that. The Germans went through that. Um, it's crazy. I didn't know this um, until I moved to Columbus, but there used to be a German-speaking community here in Columbus. Um, I'm not sure for hundreds of years, but for a long period of time. But once World War II came down, Germans, they really silenced their German identity and eventually stopped speaking German. Um, so, you know, once again... Um, you know, how, like, how do we continue to be, you know, we the people? How do we preserve that idea of we the people of just like we're we're one unit? Yeah. Um, and then he kind of just talks about like the different stratifications that happen in our society, right? That you know talks about Silicon Valley and how in order to work at Silicon Valley, you have to be the best and brightest have very good education, have the best skills. Um, but then he goes further into that in terms of how we're constantly um, in our capitalist society, we're showing this is number one, right? This is the number one car. This is the number two car. Yeah. Like consumer reports, right? Um, business class, uh, just um, we're stratifying our society. So how can you create a sense of solidarity? Like how can Bill Gates, who's a billionaire, who has access to like the world's riches ever be relatable to someone like me who, you know, doesn't have access to the world's riches, right? Or, right. or any American at that. Um, um, so uh, then he kind of swings back and starts talking about identities and recognition. 
and how when people in our society um, experience grievances, whether or not other citizens, they see those grievances as legitimate, right? So like Me Too movement happens, right? How many guys, you know, are like, what the heck is this, right? Like, you know, um, and are empathetic to some of the struggles that women are going through, right? Or for example, black Americans, when something like George Floyd happens, like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's bad, but like, do I really feel like a sense of like doing anything about it? Do I really have the time? Um, and do I find it important? Um, so I, you know, I think once again, it's, I, I find it hard to ever take, you know, a hard position on any of these issues. And I think you should, you know, kind of have a stance on it, but like, you can kind of understand like both sides of the story, right? Right. Like, why should, a farmer community out in just the middle of Idaho really have a strong feeling towards like the black lives matter movement. Right. Like, and you know, you can say, Oh, well you have to. Right. But that doesn't change the fact of, you know, people are going to associate and feel stronger about certain issues that impact them than ones that don't impact them. Yeah. Right. Then he talks about meritocracy, just generally favors like inequality and inequality happens um, as a consequence of stratifying people by merit. Um, it definitely creates opportunities, I think, for people to, to move up. But he also kind of mentions how it's a kind of bit of a snowball effect. It's like money begets more money, right? And if you don't have money, you don't have resources, and you're kind of falling behind in the race, right? You're going to continue to fall and slide back. Um, and, you know, he said we really talk about merit in terms of, we always talk about merit in terms of moving up, but we really talk about merit in terms of like sliding down in society. Mm -hmm. And we don't really talk about like how to prevent the slide happening down. He keeps on going. He talks about how even if you were trying to equalize like merit and create equal opportunity, affirmative action, um, all these different policies to create equal opportunities for everybody to fulfill their authentic self, um, there's still always going to be hidden advantages that people have, right? That you can never eliminate. You know, you can't put everyone to start this, the, the race at the same time. Um, people are always just going to have specific advantages over one another. And then I thought what was interesting, I mean... Yeah, uh, does, does yeah. he, like, provide a potential solution to that, or...? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear, you know, in this section, particularly, like, any hard solutions mm -hmm. um, in terms of, like, what should be done. Um I think his intuition is to stick with affirmative action and stick with these policies for now. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I didn't find like, okay, what was the next step to, to offset some of these differences and um, some of the problems in our way our society is structured. Right. So, but um, 
I thought it was interesting. He, I'm skipping over a few sections in the chapter, but he talks about how like people will cheat the system. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if you remember that scandal that happened where parents were paying like certain individuals, like bribing individuals pretty much to get their kids into the top Ivy League schools. Yeah. So it's even to say that like people aren't really playing the game fair. So even if you create this system in which that if you work hard, you do your best, you know, you can succeed. Right. Um, there, there's people who are just going to climb the corporate ladder, climb the education ladder, climb whatever ladder um, to fight their way in um, to make it to. Um, so I, I guess it's, it's, it's similar. Yeah, in the, in the, I, I see that there are issues with it, but I don't see an attractive alternative. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, I guess there's, I, I guess there's just like something, I guess, just generally about our democracy or just like our society in general is we're, we're so reactive and we feel like that we always have to be in control, that things have to always be a, that we always have to have a solution, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there, there, there has to be some level of contentment and some acceptance to say, like, this is just the reality of life, right? There's always going to be people who are just going to be born into wealth, born into success, right? And we shouldn't guilt those people, right? And some people are going to be born into, like, no, no, one, no one had a choice, right, in terms of the family or the society or the culture that, were, that they were born in. Like, no one, no one truly had, to, had a say in any of these things, right? Right. Now... I do think we have a responsibility towards like helping, you know, our fellow citizens and helping our fellow man um, that if we see someone who's struggling, we should, you know, reach a hand and try to help them out. Right. right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's the role that we have to have. Now, I think what this book is trying to say, okay, like, well, well how does the government reach, a, you know, give a helping hand? How does the government help people? Um, you know, get ahead. Right. And I don't know. I, I think, I think that's one of the flaws or things I, I find problematic about like our, our secular government, right? It's that we put so much emphasis that the government will take care of you. The government has to come and do everything for you. Um, and how much of that can be uh, referred back to just communities and people and people in your direct vicinity helping one another to help each other get ahead. Yeah. Like, in, instead of thinking, okay, like, my government always has to be helping me, like, what, what, what has prevented you from, like, you and people in your family working together, or you, if you have a brother, or if you have a sister, or you have siblings and cousins, or you're part of a, a faith community, to say, like, how can we improve one another and help each other's like kids. And um, if you have a group of families, you know, those group of families look out for one another and their kids um, and developing advantages amongst yourselves. Right. In my opinion, that sounds more democratic, right. Than just always having big brother looking after you. So. Yeah. I think I agree with, with that for the most part. But. Yeah, I mean, I mean, unless we want like total communism and just say that like, you 
everybody gets the same wage for different jobs and stuff like that. But I think that that idea has been well defeated mm-hmm. in theory and in practice. So, but I, I think that there, there is opportunities though from people who do hold public office, people who are part of the government to encourage people to be better or be more helping to, to other citizens who are different than them, right? Or to, to make an effort at least to get to know of other people within your society, um, to step out of your circle and um, dedicate, you know, allocate some, some of your time to, um, to reach out. I think that really we do pretty well at the individual level. I think it's when we start kind of um, abstracting ourselves into these like identities that that's where we, we often have more conflict with like the abstract disagreements of our identities than on an individual basis. Yeah. Well, I think I think there's a problem though with the system, right? Is that when we the more that we talk about race, I think the more that it creates more racism in a sense because we we say that the thing that binds us is our government and our constitution. So that's the thing that like ultimately binds like us as Americans. But when we see that there is preferential treatment via the government towards one race over the other, then we start to raise questions about race. And then that kind of creates like a conflict between different races and different groups. But if people, just people amongst ourselves, like think about, okay, if we had, you know, me, you, um, an African-American, Asian-American, uh, a Jewish American, if we were all to sit together and say, okay, well, how can we help and support one another in the absence of what the government does, right? right? To make diverse communities locally, um, to see how we can support one another. Um, I, I don't think it'd be as polarizing. Um, yeah, I think I totally yeah. agree. I think the argument to that would just be that like the government has the power and the ability to do so at a larger scale or something like that. Right. But yeah, I think you always kind of get into a little bit of trouble when you start. Mm, hard to say, but like sort of overgeneralizing or like lumping large groups of people into certain identities and then trying to make a policy off of that. Right. Or just having like your entire community represent. Like I, I always find it problematic is like, there's, there's people in the Muslim community who are supposedly representing the Muslim community, mm-hmm. right, on a government level. And um, I'm not sure if, if you know, I, I necessarily align myself or I, I trust those people representing my community um, or, or they're doing it in the most fair way. Um, so I'm, I'm sure other minority groups kind of have, a, you know, also kind of maybe even some you know majority populations in the country as well have you know some figure politician who's supposed to be like leading the charge and capturing everything about what this group of people is thinking and saying um 
it's kind of yeah like that a, no yeah. that's what I, I think that we're all even within these groups like we're all individuals and we have our own unique standpoints and viewpoints on things like that so that's why i'm saying like you i don't think you can ever put like a a movement together that somehow would align to all of one group of people's beliefs or yeah so yeah i'm on i'm on board with that i yeah yes i think we can i think all you can do is just continue to try to improve like the conditions that you have yeah look like, at look at yeah. a community level as an individual you just try to improve yourself like within your community you try to improve your community and then hopefully when it gets up to that higher level like you just hope those people actually try to improve <laughs> yeah improve as well i think the only situation is like if you find like deliberate blocks mm. like po like specific policies that are deliberately blocking people from specific opportunities or specific freedoms then i could say that you know people need to mobilize and step in yeah but generally speaking to always try to make a perfect like secret sauce policy that gives everybody just like all the benefits and opportunities and, and whatever it's i think it's it, it, it's it's a bit too tough it's too tough to spend um like 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 the civil rights movement i think that was like the right step that was the right step in the right direction like yeah if, if people are like you know women couldn't vote or or other things right like there's deliberate blocks that are being placed in front of people um but like what blocks are there in our time right like if you're an american citizen you have access to you have access to a lot right i mean you you have a lot of opportunities and a lot of freedoms around you and i don't know like do you ever question like people like are you taking advantage of those opportunities are you actually using all those resources you know to the best of your ability like our education system, like public education system is, is still pretty solid. I would say like you can get a good education, but how many people are applying themselves yeah. in work or their Yeah. I'm sure that there are some blocks that I don't, I'm sure there's always some blocks or something that I'm not aware of. Yeah. Like the, but, the disability act, like, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I would say in, in general, just as a life philosophy, even if it's not true always, I feel like you're better to enfranchise yourself and believe in your ability to improve instead of trying to find a reason yeah. to hold you down, I guess. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else we missed? <laughs> my, my, my throat's going dry, man. I'm, I'm down in this water, but I'm okay. <laughs> if there's anything you want to talk about in closing, if not, I think we can wrap it up. I guess maybe just like a final note is like, I think the, the biggest thing I, I you know, I, I come out of this is just, it's especially the compromises with capitalism chapter is that people need more financial literacy. Yeah. Across the board. Um, <laughs> and go do your research on Bretton Woods and uh, Federal Reserve. 
Yeah. <laughs> take a mac take a macro economics class. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> anyway, like it's always always a pleasure as always yeah. play to uh, dive into this book. We got I think three more chapters left and then we're almost yeah. done. We'll probably just do yeah, one or two more and wrap it up. So All Good right. Deal, done.